Well, I am absolutely so excited, and, and it's a challenge uh, for me because <clears throat> when I get excited, I usually start going whoop, and, and so I've got to try to pace myself. Uh, but I am so excited. This is championship day for the church, right? That's what this is. This is championship day. And, uh, and, and uh, I am so excited, but I'm also a little bit nervous. And, and I'm nervous because uh, some of you have never heard me speak before. And that makes me a little bit nervous. But I'm also nervous because one of my heroes is here today, sitting right over here to my left. His name is Dr. Ken Hemphill and his wife, Paula. And uh, y'all might not know that I had two presidents in seminary when I was in seminary. Uh, I had one uh, when I started seminary. He didn't make. He didn't keep very long. Uh, and then Dr. Hemphill and Paula came. And I was not nearly as nervous about uh, being in the same church with Dr. Hemphill uh, as I was being on a committee with Miss Paula Hemphill. Because, listen, I, I was on staff, but she was in charge. And and, and she did a great job. She helped me. She mentored me. And Ken did a pretty good job of helping me too. But Paula really mentored me and helped me. But let's thank God for them and their ministry here. What heroes. 12 years today uh, in July, Dr. Hemphill. My goal was to be here longer than you. I don't know if that's of God or not, but it was my goal. You know, that competition thing. But, uh, but you have set the bar high for First Baptist Church Norfolk, and we love you, and we thank God for you. I appreciate you. All right. <clears throat> well, it, it, and so I, I get a little bit nervous, but this is championship day, and, and, and this is the celebration of the big win, uh, the big win for humanity, the big win for the world. That's what Easter is all about. When we get together here today, we are celebrating God's big win over the universe, over evil, and over the devil, and over darkness. It is, it is God's big win that Jesus was on a mission to fulfill. Jesus came to bring to fulfillment that great big win where death is killed, where sin is overwhelmed, and where life and love erupt on the scene of human history. That's what Easter is all about. But when you get here, some of you are here, and maybe it doesn't feel quite like that. You know, you hear me talk about all that stuff, and you're like, well, no, I don't, I'm not feeling that. And I understand that. Uh, maybe, maybe this day for you is a, a, the right thing for you to do. I mean, this is what you've always done. Or maybe you got a call from your grandparents or your parents or your children saying, we want you to be at church with us this Easter, and you thought, well, you know, I want to honor my parents or honor my grandparents or honor my, chi honor my children, so I'll be there. And, uh, and, and so that's why you're here, and that's great. I'm glad you're here for that reason. Uh, some of you are here because maybe there's something out of whack in your life. There, there's just something disconnected. And, uh, and you've tried a lot of things to connect the dots and, and try to Tried a lot of things already to turn your upside down life right side up, but up to this point, nothing's really helped that much. And so it's a big day. You got an invitation, or you heard about this thing happening 
in this building. And, and so you decide, well, maybe, maybe what happens inside this building could be a help for me. And if that's why you're here, I'm so glad that you're here. And some of us are here today because there's been a change that's taken place inside us. I mean, something has changed within us. And so because of that something that has changed, because we've tasted this big win that God has made available to us at Easter, because we've tasted that big win, when we get together here, not just on this Sunday, but every weekend, when we get together here, man, we are celebrating that big win. Um, Doesn't mean we do life perfectly, but it does mean that we know how to look to the perfect one to help us through this life. And so today, some of us have gathered here simply to celebrate, and I'm so glad you're here. But regardless of why you're here, I want to I want to kind of share with you my viewpoint on that. I think that God has orchestrated every aspect of your life to bring you right here, right now. And it's my hope and prayer that regardless of the reason that you've come, that God would speak to your heart in a powerful way, in a way that will change your life. Well, as we look at this day, there are a lot of things that we um, can evaluate. I want to start out with this idea. Uh, when you were a child uh, or younger, uh, and you remember when you were in preschool, perhaps, and you were given the assignment to draw a picture, and maybe it's draw a picture of your family or of your home, and so you take uh, the brush and you take the colors and all these different colors, and you love the colors. And you take the brush and you take the colors and you begin to paint. And you begin to paint this house with a roof and a chimney and a little smoke coming out of it. And maybe you draw a picture of your family there to the side of the house holding hands. And maybe you have a little pet dog or a pet cat or a pet turtle or a pet chipmunk or something. You, you draw a picture of a little pet. And maybe up in the right-hand corner you take yellow and you draw a sun. And, 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 and that's your picture. And, and, and I'm telling you, I love those pictures. I have a drawer full of those pictures. I actually have a file of pictures that children in our church have painted and made of me. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Have you seen the pictures that your children have drawn of me uh, or of you? Oh, one of the things that I appreciate about those pictures, there are some things they always get right. My bald spot. All of them, without fail, they'll get my bald spot right. But there are other things that are kind of, I mean, if it didn't have Pastor Eric above it, and I saw it on the street, I wouldn't necessarily know it's me. I love all the work that went into it, but, but there's some, some indistinguishable features of that drawing. And, and that's the way it is for us when we try to draw. Even if you're skilled and expert in, in some aspects of drawing, there, there's some things that, that we have not yet learned about proportion and, and mixing colors and balance. But suppose while you're sitting there at the canvas with palette and paints and brush in hand, one of the master painters walked into the room. A master painter like da Vinci or Matisse 
or Bob Ross? I don't know how many of y'all will get that, but that's a good one. I didn't use Thomas Kincaid, but uh, you know. Uh, but one of the masters walks into the room, and, and they come up to you. So Da Vinci walks in, and he says, hey, Eric, why don't you let me have the brush and the paints, and I will paint a portrait of you. And so you say, absolutely, because this is Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. Everything he paints goes to the Louvre, right? I mean, this is famous guy, master painter. And he takes the brush and the colors in his hands, and, and he mixes the, 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 the paints on the palette, and he ben, takes the brush and he moves it along the canvas. And you think, wow, that's amazing. But as Da Vinci is coloring, or painting, he doesn't color, he paints. I color, he paints. As Da Vinci is painting, something happens on the inside of you. You watch what he's doing. And as you watch what he's doing, there's something that rises up inside of you that says, you know, I feel like I could do that too. You watch him a little bit longer and that ego begins to build a little bit more and you begin to feel like Not only could I do what Da Vinci is doing, I can do it better than Da Vinci does. And so you grab the palette and the paints and the brush from the hands of Da Vinci and you say, scuttle on your way. I'm going to paint my own portrait. Now, think about it. Which painter will paint the masterpiece. I can tell you, on my best days, I'm only finger painting. Now, that's the story of the Bible, and that's the meaning and the significance of Easter. The story of the Bible is that God, the master, who created the heavens and the earth, has made us And he's created us in his image and his likeness. In fact, the psalmist said that that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That he has created this masterpiece. But each and every one of us, all of us in this room, somewhere along the way, our ego began to rise up within us. And we determined that we were going to take the paints and the palette and the brush in our own hands, and we were going to paint a selfie and kick the master to the curb. Now, we might not think it that way, and we might not say it that way, but that's what we do. Every time in our life where we have chosen to live life the way we want to rather than the way God says, every time we decide that I can do this life better than God can paint the life for me, we're guilty of kicking the master to the curb and deciding that I'll paint my own selfie. The problem is anytime we paint ourselves, We take our own color and our own palette and and our own brush in hand and, and we begin to paint. Our perspective is wrong. See, the master has the perfect perspective, but our perspective is skewed. 
When, when I would paint a picture of myself as a kid or even as an adult, now, I would have a hard time with the head. It wasn't quite square and it wasn't quite round. It was somewhere in between and it was, it, it, it had, it, I, it was weird. But even more challenging than the head for me was always the eyes and the nose. And so I would begin to, 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 to uh, draw and paint this picture of a person. The head would be off, not the right dimensions. And, and even when I did that little square thing that you're supposed to do, that put that little cross in the middle of the person so you have the right dimensions between the eyes and the nose, and I did all that stuff, it would still come off. And the nose would be like that. And the eyes would be like that. And it would be like the hunchback of Notre Dame type look, right? I mean, just, just, just strange and goofy. Well, that, that's how we do life because we don't have the right perspective. And we don't know how to bring balance to our life. And yet we determine that we're the master of our own fate. The Bible calls that sin, by the way. Sin is a big word in the Bible, but simply stated, sin is where we take charge of our own life, we do it the way we want to, and we don't really care what God says. Or God's a take-it-and-a-leave-it kind of advice giver. He gives some advice, we'll take it, but we can leave it. We don't really care that much. Sin is when we go our own way rather than walk God's way. And here's the thing, all of us have done it, and all of us are doing it. And all of us will do it again. The problem, when we take the palette and the paint and the brush in our own hands, is we always paint ourselves into a corner. And we simply live a mess-up kind of life that we've created for ourselves. You think about your life right now. What, what is the mess up, the biggest mess up that you have in your life? I mean, think back across the, the, the days or the decades. For me, it's usually seconds and minutes and hours. But, but if you have to take days and decades, think back along your life. What is the biggest mess up you have? Do you realize that's the mess up you chose? I was talking to one of my friends yesterday. He said, he said you know, just don't be stupid. That's good advice. But sometimes, especially when we have the paint and the palette and the brush in our own hands, stupid is a way of life. We mess up. And we want a do-over. But here's the problem. We can't have a do-over. This is the one life that we have. This is the one life that we are creating with our brush strokes and with our colors and our paints. But the message of Easter is not merely that we have decided to paint our own story, our own life, but that God hasn't given up on us yet. And that God has sent Jesus to give us life, to turn our mess up into a masterpiece. Now, Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, uh, in, in last week we looked, Jesus was killed on a cross, John 18 and 19. 
This week, John 20, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb in verse 1 of chapter 20, and she, she looks for Jesus. He's not there. He, she, she runs and tells Simon Peter and, and John the apostle. And he says, uh, the, they, they've taken away the stone and, and the body of Jesus. We don't know where they've laid him. And, and so Peter and John, they run, and John was faster than Peter because he was Speedy Gonzalez. He gets to the tomb first. He looks in and he sees the, the clothes uh, of Jesus that had wrapped his body. He sees the, the, the handkerchief laying on the stone. The, 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 Peter sees the, the, the cloths there lying in the tomb. And they go back to wherever they were, back to their homes. And Mary's there and Mary's crying. And as Mary is crying, Jesus appears to her. Mary sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him as Jesus. She says, she, says, uh, she thought he was the gardener. She said, have you taken the body of my Lord? Just tell me where, where you've laid him and I'll go get him. And Jesus looks and says, Mary. And when Jesus speaks Mary's name, her eyes are opened. She recognizes him. She says, teacher, Rabboni. Well, eventually Jesus appears to the other disciples. So, so the, the story, the, the point of John 20 is to s tell us that, hey, Jesus is really alive. Now, here's what we believe in the church. And this is what we believe in this church, what I believe. That Jesus is a real man who lived in real time, who was really killed on a cross and was really dead. And he was put in a tomb and the stone covered the tomb. And then the stone rolled away by the hand of God's power. And Jesus, who was really dead, really came back to life. That God raised Jesus from the dead. So he's alive. And, and if we believe that, it changes everything for us. Okay? It's not just a good story. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. We believe it's real history. And it's changed our life. But here's what John does. As, as he's told the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he tells us why he's written all this whole book that he's written, but especially about the cross and the resurrection. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And guys, that's really what we need. See, we need life. We need life without any missing parts. We need life that, that uh, isn't a mangled mess that we've created, but rather we need life as God intended. And Jesus comes to offer us life without any missing parts. Jesus offers us this life without any missing parts that, that, that he might give us life as God intended, not the mess up that we've created. But how do we get hold of it? See, you look at your marriage and you think, what a mess up. Or you look at your money and you say, oh, what a mess up. 
you look at your children or uh, children, you look at your parents, you say, oh, what a mess up. You look at your job and you think, wow, what a mess up. You look at the whole of your life or just parts of your life and you see that some of those things are just a mangled mess that you've painted. And today, Jesus says, okay, you have a mess, but I'll give you a masterpiece. But you got to give me the brush and the palette and the paint. And John writes in John 20, he says, okay, I write these things. I've told you all this story about Jesus because I want you to believe on him as the Christ the Son of God. When we believe on Jesus as the Christ, that's an Old Testament term translated into the Greek in the New Testament, and, and simply it means it's the Messiah. And John said, I, I've, I've told you all this, especially the cross and the resurrection, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Well, in the Old Testament, that meant that he was the royal king who would come to set God's people free. But in the New Testament, Messiah got bigger than that. In the New Testament, Messiah, Christ, means that Jesus is our rescuer. That Jesus has come to set us free. Not just a select few, but he has come to rescue you and me. He's come to rescue us. He's our Messiah. He's our Christ. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the rescuer, but that you also might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is a little bit more challenging. You see, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God means that, that, that you believe that Jesus, like God the Father, has the characteristics and the quality of who God is. So much so that he is God himself. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which is really a technical phrase in the, in the Gospels especially. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God means that you believe that he so uniquely and intimately is connected to God the Father that he perfectly declares and displays to us who God is. That he does the things that God told him to do, but he does things that only God can do. That Jesus is the Son of God. So John wrote these things that we would believe that Jesus is our rescuer and that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, we know he's the Son of God by what John wrote because Jesus knows everything about us. Jesus knows us completely. Do you realize that Jesus knows you and me perfectly? There is nothing about you that Jesus does not know. So Jesus is examining the portrait that you have painted. And he examines it and evaluates it perfectly and he sees every mess up that you've made. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, we, uh, I hear often and have heard for as long as I've uh, been in church, which is all my life, uh, people say, I don't want to go to church because just a bunch of hypocrites there. It always makes me giggle. Because if you're not going to go to church where there are hypocrites, where can you go? 
Because there are hypocrites everywhere. And by the way, it's a true statement. There are hypocrites in the church. In fact, I would go so far as to say is that we're all hypocrites. Now, you might not like being called that. I don't either, but it's true. A hypocrite is someone where there's inconsistency between what you say and what you do. Well, who, who has perfect consistency between what you say and what you do? On top of that, you try to cover it up. You cover it up with a lot of different things. But how many of us have ever tried to cover up the inconsistency that we have between what we say and what we do? You see why I say we're all hypocrites? Oh, we're all hypocrites, but there's one person before whom we could never be a hypocrite. His name is Jesus. You know why? Because he already knows everything about you. He knows every inconsistency between what you say and what you do. He knows every lie you've ever told. He knows everything you've ever stolen. He, he knows every deceit, every, every harsh word, every anger in your heart. He, he knows everything about you. In John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman in Samaria by a watering well. And as he talked with her, immediately this woman began to realize that Jesus knew stuff about her that she hadn't told him. In fact, she went around to her village and she began to tell the people, you need to come meet this guy because he told me everything that I'd ever done. In the same way, Jesus knows you. There's nothing in you, in your heart, in your motives, in your mind, or in your actions that's hidden from him. But what's even more important is that Jesus knows you completely, and yet he loves you absolutely. Jesus loves you absolutely, not by you becoming a better you. He loves the mangled mess that you've created. He loves you. He loves you the way you are. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. Jesus loves me absolutely, like father, like son. He loved me enough to die on a cross for me. See, here's, here's what uh, I learned and what you learned. You know, the, the, uh, the price of something is determined by the value someone places on it. And the value someone places on an item is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for that item. When I was in high school and college, I worked at an auction house, and, and it, was, it, it had this auction once a month, and, and I would uh, go, and we would unload the, the big uh, 18-wheeler uh, trailer, and, and, and as we were pulling furniture out, we would evaluate, well, what do you think that'll go for? And, and we had a history of, of, of what hall trees would go for, or cupboards, or or that kind of thing, wardrobes. And, and so we would say, or chairs, we'd say, oh, that would go for a couple of bucks or 20 bucks or 50 bucks or 75. And we would evaluate that, and then we'd go through and we'd number all the items, describe all the items, and, and the auctioneer would organize them perfect the way he wanted them. And then the night of the auction, the next night came along, and, 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 uh, and, and I would go along and I would hold up the furniture. I was the Vanna White of the auction house. And I would hold up the furniture, and I would, I would, uh, I, 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 I would always be interested in, in how the auction would go. And the auctioneer would begin, with, say, with a chair. And he'd say, how many, how many of you all would uh, bid $10 for this chair and get 10 and then 15 And that chair would normally go for $25. 
But every now and then, someone at an auction would take a $25 chair and they would begin to bid it up. It wasn't 25 anymore, it was 30. And it wasn't 30 anymore, it was 40. It wasn't 40, it was 75. It wasn't 75. I've seen them go as high as $125 for a chair that was really, in my opinion, was only worth 25. But do you know the value of that chair was $125? Because that's the price someone was willing to pay for it. You know, we may look at our own lives and we might say, well, it's worth a quarter or a nickel or a dime. But Jesus looked at your life and he said, oh no, it is infinitely valuable. So valuable, I will die to forgive you. Jesus died to forgive us. Jesus is the Son of God who knows us perfectly. He's the Son of God who loves us perfectly. But He is our Savior. He's our Rescuer. He's the Messiah. He has come to forgive us. Jesus took our place upon a cross to pay the price for our sin. You see, we painted a mess up of a life. And we don't get a do-over. We can't start over. But Jesus has come to wipe the slate clean to provide absolute forgiveness for our sin, to start over with brush in his hand to forgive us and to paint a masterpiece to replace the mess up we've made. Jesus died to forgive us. Jesus died on a cross in our place taking the punishment that our sin demands. He died for me. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then you are believing that Jesus died to forgive your sin. Jesus died to forgive us, but he also rose again to give us life. You see, as Paul described it, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. Jesus doesn't take the mess up we've made and try to repair it like a tattoo gone wrong. Have you seen those shows where you have these tattoos and, and people are ashamed of those tattoos because it's like Tweety Bird or something? And, and they come in, they say, I want this tattoo uh, fixed. And, and so the tattoo artist will take that, that messed up tattoo and try to do something with it. And sometimes they do a better job than others. And, 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 and yet they're trying to repair something by painting over it or inking over it. And while I can appreciate that, that's not how Jesus does it. He doesn't try to paint over our mess up. He wipes the slate clean and he starts us over. He makes us brand new. When we see Jesus as our rescuer, we see that he came to forgive us, but he also he, he came to give us new life. His resurrection from the dead means that he's already defeated Satan. He's already killed sin. He's already conquered death. And when we believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, we are believing that the life that he purchased through his resurrection becomes our new life, our new beginning, our fresh start. He takes our mess up and he promises a masterpiece. See, the story of Easter is given to us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, 
we might have life through his name. Today, do you want life without any missing parts? Do you want to experience this wondrous work of Jesus in you where he takes the mess up of your life and he creates a masterpiece? You might say, well, Eric, that sounds too simple. I know. It does, doesn't it? And it is that simple. Except for one part. See, we've lived our lives with the paint and the palette and the brush in our own hands. But for us, for us to receive life without any missing parts, we have to give the palette and the paint and the brush to Jesus. We have to give him ownership of our life. And that's what stops some of us from tasting life without any missing parts. You got to give your life to the master. But if you believe that Jesus came to your rescue. If you believe that he knows you perfectly and he loves you absolutely and he died to forgive your sin on a cross and he rose to give you new life, then today I invite you to take your palette and your paint and your brush and place it in the hands of the Master.